Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. Jose Valim has announced that he's recording a sneak peek of his secret project NX with us. And it's true, and we're super excited. So we're having a special recording with Jose about that. As soon as that's available and everyone's ready to release that, that will show up in our feed. So I hope you're subscribed. As it's mentioned before, we will be at the Lambda Days conference, recording a live episode of Thinking Elixir. And the conference has given us a special discount code for any of you who are currently interested in going but haven't signed up yet. So you can use the Thinking Elixir 15 to get a 15% discount code. So check the show notes for that, but it's Thinking Elixir, all lowercase, one word, Thinking Elixir 15. Herman Valesco's got a new course out called the uh, TestingLiveView.com. It's an early access course. Uh, it goes along with his book that we've also mentioned on the podcast before called uh, Test Driven Development with Phoenix. Pretty cool to see that out. I'm excited to see the, the course uh, and it's an early action. Go check it out. Next up, it looks like Nerve Circuits Quick Start updated their images. The Elixir Circuits Quick Start firmware lets you try out Elixir Circuits projects on real hardware without need- needing to create a Nerves project. Um, it comes with a few upgrades, and one of the things is making Wi-Fi a lot easier. So give that a look if you're interested in Nerves and have been waiting to dive in. The Erlang Ecosystem Foundation is now the proud owner of the GitHub Action Setup Elixir. This action sets up an Elixir environment for use in GitHub Actions workflow by installing OTP and installing Elixir. And just as a note, currently this action only supports Ubuntu-based runtimes. But what's interesting about this is it's kind of become like an official supported one. So that's cool because a lot of people are using GitHub and using GitHub Actions for their CI. So that's exciting. Yeah, it kind of, kind of mirrors the uh, Docker images too. Um, now that's also uh, officially supported by um, by the Elixir team, or Hex team, rather. Have you ever thought that Elixir wasn't good for quick scripts? Like maybe because you always have to set up a, a mixed project to get uh, dependencies, for example? Like uh, just getting basic JSON parsing, you need a, needed a dependency to do that. For that reason, I think a lot of folks have probably shied away from using Elixir for quick scripts. And there's even a project out there, uh, we talked about it a couple of weeks back, actually, called Teeks. Teeks aims to solve this problem by like creating temporary mixed projects to enable you to like quick script some stuff in Elixir a little bit easier. Well, so here's the news. This may not need a package anymore like Teeks. In Elixir 1.12 coming up, we have a new function that we can call from mix. Uh, so inside of your EXS scripts, you can call mix.install and pass in a list of dependencies like you normally would in a mix.exs, you know, the list of dependencies, pass that into mix.install directly, and it'll uh, create that temporary mix project for you and load those dependencies uh, immediately so it's available to you for the rest of your script. I'm really excited about that. I mean, really, it's an, it's an observation, right? Like, I remember a couple of years back, you know, a lot of folks would say that, like, ah, deployment is so hard in Elixir, uh, something along those lines. I mean, it's not hard anymore. Like, th- those have been problems that we've solved, I think, that the, the Elixir team has solved. And so now somebody's come up and say, ah, scripting in Elixir is too hard. I don't think that's going to be true for much longer. So very excited. That's Elixir 1.12 where that lands. Yeah, and I just have to mention that it was the initiative of Wojtek Mach putting together the proposal for this and actually doing the work. 
So really exciting. You know, Jose Valim has been talking about with his project NX, wanting to push Elixir into directions where it hasn't previously been. Wojtek felt that's what we could do with taking Elixir and kind of pushing it more towards script friendliness. So super exciting to see that. It'll be very interesting to see what people end up doing with that. Very cool. Excited to try it out. The wee pillfold of the Gleam Lang project announced recently a new feature being added to Gleam. The new feature is that Gleam now also generates valid type specs. This helps with integrations and support when calling Gleam code from Elixir or Erlang. We talked with Louis in episode 23, so we'll put a link in the show notes if you want to go back and listen to that. Yeah, one of the things that came out in that discussion with Louis is that Gleam is actually generating Erlang code, and it's a statically typed language. So you're able to take that static type information and generate valid type specs that go into the code that you're generating. So that benefits Elixir and Erlang libraries calling that. So that's really cool. I like that. Yeah. Uh, Calling all IntelliJ users uh, that also use Elixir. If you're using the Elixir plugin there, uh, there's been a a great update. Um, Go check out the update to the IntelliJ Elixir plugin. Also, lots of hex.pm news. First of all, we talked about uh, hex.pm a a lot on here. It's kind of hard not to. But uh, there was a recent update with Hex to allow self-hosted updates. Mark, do you remember what that was like? Like, how how do we use these self-hosted Hex PM repositories? It's really interesting because last week we talked about the new update that lets you do this. And I had a question and I reached out to Wojtek Mock and it's like, how do I do this? We didn't know how you could use multiple repos in a Mixi.xs file. And Wojtek answered that for me saying that Hex PM is always the default repository. But you can use on the command line mix hex.repo add and specify an additional repository. Then when you're inside your mixexs file and you're adding a specific dependency inside the tuple, you can use a repo atom as part of the keyword list of options and specify by the name the repo to use. So you can support multiple repos that way. Gotcha. Yeah, so I guess like you're adding it to your environment then. Yeah, so only your environment would have that knowledge of the repository. What's cool about that is now you could have that, you know, uh, self-hosted hex and then just be able to say, you know, like you ha- we could have like an internal one for our company team. Certain internal libraries that are shared between many projects could be hosted there and you could just pull directly from that. It's an interesting idea. Yeah. Also, uh, hex.outdated uh, was recently updated. Um, I run this all the time just to see what, uh, what dependencies, you know, need to be bumped uh, internally. But along with that, you'll also see the inclusion now of a little URL. If you click on that URL, you'll you'll come up to a page that presents you with all of those uh, dependencies that could be updated from what version to what version, and then a button to see the diff between those uh, between those versions for each of, you, each of your dependencies. So pretty neat. Lastly, about hex, uh, hex.pm, Todd Residek announced a new feature. Uh, if you go to preview.hex.pm, you'll be able to review exactly uh, what is installed in, uh, for, for any given hex package. Um, so for example, if you're looking for the source code of, of a hex package that you want to install, normally you would be going to GitHub for that kind of stuff, right? There would be a link um, to the GitHub source. But those are two disconnected you know, repositories, hex being one and GitHub being the other. It's entirely possible that somebody would publish different code up to Hex than what exists up to GitHub. So since Hex is the source of truth, it would make sense for there to be a, uh, the ability to actually browse and view the, the code that actually exists on Hex. 
Uh, so pretty cool. Uh, and there's a there's a, a great, uh, nice and short blog post uh, in the show notes to explain more about this awesome feature. But I'm really loving uh, all the recent developments with Hex.pm. Yeah, it just feels like these are the kind of features you see as a community and an environment like matures, you know, it's exciting. And lastly, there's a software package called X-Plane. And if you're into the like simulator environments, like where you're actually simulating flying a, a real aircraft, X-Plane is like one of the leading edge software packages to do that. You know, you can buy tens of thousand dollar cockpit rigs for actual pilot training and stuff like that. So what's interesting is they announced a new feature that they're having an MMO kind of feature where you can be simultaneously flying in this environment with other pilots who are also simultaneously in this simulated environment. And they are using Elixir to do that whole real-time, where am I, where are you, what's happening with the MMO feature. I expect we'll probably end up seeing this as an Elixir case study soon. But I'm really excited because we talked with Tyler Young and we're going to have him on the podcast in a future episode. So hope you're subscribed and stay tuned for that. And that's it for the news. Today, we are excited to have our special guest, Alan Weimar. Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm excited to talk to you because I saw that you did a cool uh, YouTube video about doing something that I kind of thought was interesting. And I was like, I never thought of doing this, but it's using Postgres its own pub sub built into that, but using that from Elixir. And so I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on why you chose that direction and how that works. Before we jump into that, I'd love to talk a little bit about you. So first, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself, like where you live and what kind of work you're doing. I'm originally from the southwest side of Chicago. Well, the suburbs, basically, but pretty close, about five minute walk. Uh, I'm in the city limits. And uh, it's kind of funny because as I'm driving on the street, I'm constantly in and out of the city. It's You don't even know what, if, <laughs> where you are at any point in time, just going down one street. Yeah, the short story about how I came to Hong Kong is that, wow, it's not even a short story. I'll try to be as short as possible because it gets quite long. I uh, wanted to work in the government. And then my dad said, okay, well, if you take another language, then you'll probably be able to actually you know, get a better chance. My dad usually always spends about four hours in the bathroom every single time reading the whole newspaper front to end. And so he says, okay, uh, looks like China and some other countries are in there. So how about you either learn Farsi or you learn Mandarin? And so I said, okay, uh, maybe I'll check out Mandarin. So I decided to take a minor in Chinese, Mandarin, went to school, uh, started Mandarin classes, hated it, hated it so much. Really, uh, with a passion, I mean, because it's so different, right? I mean, I took eight years or so of Spanish. I couldn't tell you any Spanish words anymore. Yeah, then I took a trip. So my school, my school is about two thousand kids total. My university I went to, my uh, my college. What you could do is you could take a trip, which is what I did, which is actually I went to China. I loved it because it was so different. They really uh, changed my life. It's just that one trip, and so I actually switched from a, from from a minor to a major when I graduated. It was kind of really bad economy at that time. So we're still covering from like the financial crisis. And uh, I said, okay, uh, when I go to China for a couple of years, I enjoyed my time over there and then come back and things are better. Of course, my mom was like, no, 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 don't do it. You know, uh, you're my boy. Uh, that was actually a bigger reason to leave, right? I can't <laughs> be any farther away than halfway around the world. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love my mom, but you know, you, you need, a, need a break once in a while, right? So you've been living in Hong Kong now for about how long? Legally, I think it's been about six years or so. So I should be getting my, my PR, my permanent residence pretty soon. And so I saw a video that you posted that was part of the Plangora YouTube channel. And I understand that Plangora is your consulting company, right? When I got to Hong Kong, 
what I noticed that there was quite a lot of beginner developers and really advanced, but not many intermediate. And I think basically all of us already know that, you know, the beginner developers, you don't really want to work with, at least unless if they're alone, you don't really want to work with them because, you know, they may make some mistakes. The advanced ones, they're all working in the big banks. So Hong Kong is a very, very big financial industry. And so, yeah, they're, they're happy doing whatever they're going to do. So I consider myself probably being in an intermediate stage, somewhere in there. And so there was quite a lot of companies that kind of approached me saying, hey, you know, can you help us out? And I'd say, yeah, you know, I'd love to, but I'm not allowed to because I have my visa. Just so happens that I decided to open up a company, a limited company. I Let me make this very clear. I never took any salary. The company took advantage of me. I volunteered my time for free. Okay. I never took any money in case anybody's listening. <laughs> All the money goes to the company. In any case, right? So that's kind of my start. I started up this company for some time. I did some kind of consulting work through this. And after the last job I was at, basically the only thing that was stopping this company from growing was just, you know, I was working a full-time job all the time. And so I said, okay, after this job, you know, let me just try this out. Let me just try to make this thing work. We started off doing more Ruby things. So most people, I think uh, you, especially Mark, is that you start off with Ruby, right? So mm -hmm. or not exactly Ruby, but that was just before you came to Elixir. What happened was I wanted to do things that were more concurrent and parallel. My skills with locking and all that stuff is not so great. We never really learned that stuff in school. I heard a little bit about Elixir and how it can do parallel and concurrent processing. And so I said, okay, let's give this a try. It took me some time because it's quite a different language than anything else. You always kind of have these languages coming out. There's always a new language, not as fast as there is JavaScript uh, frameworks, but there's always a new language like around the corner. And so I tried it out. I thought this was kind of cool. It was fast, right, compared to Ruby. Um, I did do some Go just before then, too, so it was also pretty fast. But the typing and everything is dynamic. Uh, it was, you know, that you could spin up threads pretty – sorry, you're not spinning up threads. You're spinning up processes. And, you know, you could do all this stuff, and it was pretty straightforward compared to if I did the same thing in Go. It's much less work. And so I started digging into it. And the way I am when I have a language that I want to learn is that I just dig in. I dig in as far as I can. Like, for one thing, I really, really don't like Python, but I learned the crap out of it because I wanted to know what is this tool I'm working with. And to this day, I have, you know, quite a few people come to me and saying, okay, yeah, Python's great, all this stuff. And I said, really? Well, what about, you know, do you know what a magic method is? No, what's that? How long have you been doing Python for? Oh, a uh, couple of years. And you don't know what a magic method is? Come on, man. <laughs> do you follow PEP8? No, what's that? What is a, what's a PEP? PEP? Like, what are you talking? Come on, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> I get this quite a lot. And I'm just surprised that people, they don't dig much into their language and they really want to rep the language, right? You'd be surprised what you can learn when you start actually doing things the way that the, that the people do the language, right? Just like you have to get into OTP. You can't just, you can get pretty far with just Elixir and, and Phoenix itself, right? But once you start to actually use the power of OTP and the concurrency and everything, it's like, you know, you really understand why companies like WhatsApp really can get quite far and mm -hmm. they sleep well at night. It's really uh, quite crazy. It sounds like Elixir and, and Erlang really, I, I guess, really attracted you via the actor model, you know, the concurrency model there. Well, now, could you even say it's the actor model now? Because they always say that they never really followed the actor model, right? They had their own style that just so happened to resemble the actor model. Isn't that right? <laughs> yes, that is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Joe Armstrong, they did, kind of developed the OTP patterns and they were doing it in parallel to what was being done by in different, you know, academic research. I, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember his name, but 
he actually coined the term actor model. And they just happen to have a lot of the same properties because it's a really good approach for solving these concurrency problems, you know, in, in large systems. Yeah, so we can say Elixir and Erlang have the actor model as a pattern, but it yeah, wasn't created as the actor model. So it's kind of a fun thing. I think Joe actually got into a fight with somebody on the uh, <laughs> on some mailing list about this, if I remember the story correctly. <laughs> that he was fighting somebody saying, so somebody said, okay, Erlang follows the actor model. And he said, no, 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 we never knew what that thing was until, you know, somebody pointed out to us how we're the same. So I thought that was quite interesting. I think it's a great lead in to talking about this uh, interesting pub sub feature with Postgres that you were bringing up because I think it does bring in, you know, our need to have uh, gen servers and subscriptions and things like that. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. And I, I first kind of became aware of what you talked about here because you'd put it together into a YouTube video showing how to write this and why you would even want to do this. So first, I just have to ask, you know, I know that uh, Redis has a built-in pub sub and people have used that like in the Rails community for doing messaging and stuff. And Postgres has it as well. The first thing I have to kind of bring up is I'm sure because you're talking about Elixir, someone's got to have said to you, well, didn't you know Phoenix has pub sub? And why not just use that? You know, so maybe you can just kind of address that kind of upfront. Like, for one, did you know that Elixir had this? <laughs> well, of course, I <laughs> I knew Elixir had had PubSub. I don't remember what movie it is, but there's that guy who's got the big drum and he's got the cymbals. He's using his knees, I think, whacking it together, and he's doing all those things. Right, the one man band. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be that kind of guy, right? I just want to have as minimal amount of dependencies as I can, and that's what it came down to. Is I have a I have a problem that I wanted to solve, which was that uh, I built a chatting system for a client, and he added in something where you can have replies. Okay, reply to, no problem. I just linked a message to another message using that simple kind of thing. So one message can have many replies. And But the problem is that that could cause a chain, right? A reply to a reply to a reply. But he also wants to be able to delete old messages. So what does that mean? Well, that means that you know I have to go back and remove that message. But then he also said, okay, if you remove a message with lots of replies, make sure you also remove those replies. I said, okay, simple. Use a cascade. But this is for a chatting system, so I have to broadcast that message back. Well, I am not very good with, with SQL, that's for sure. Actually, I just read a, a giant book about Postgres. But this wasn't where I got the idea from, right? So I thought, okay, maybe I can do this with a CTE common table expression. And I said, okay, maybe I can do that because I heard about recursive uh, things. And then I thought to myself, wait a minute, I remember a couple of years ago, somebody did a repo talking about Postgres uh, PubSub when you can actually hit those, you can broadcast a PubSub with a trigger. So I thought, okay, maybe I should try that. That sounds pretty interesting. And so I implemented it. I uh, just took a look at, you know, a couple of, there was a couple of one or two blog posts. I went through, looked at those, tried it out locally and uh, it worked. And so I just pushed it into... <laughs> into staging and then had a try with the client. He enjoyed it, pushed into production. And you guys were asking me before, you know, how's the performance? Well, like I think I put in there, uh, as long as nobody complained, then that's means the performance is good. <laughs> so that's the best, <laughs> that's the best way to tell, right? If nobody complains, nobody says there's, there's messages dangling or something, then I guess it must be working pretty well. Can you explain where the pub sub came into play here? So you're deleting these nested replies to messages, right? Mm. What did you yeah. need to notify about? So we have this chatting system, right? So if somebody ever removed a message, we have to broadcast out to a client that this message has been removed so we can remove it on their phone. 
to go back again even further, right? We really at Plangora we really focus uh, at three three languages in particular. We have uh, Elixir for our backend, mostly using um, GraphQL, uh, Phoenix. We have Flutter for our clients, mostly for the mobile clients, and then we finally we have Rust, which is what we use for like high performance. And so those three things that we try to focus on, and those are things that of course I picked out myself. Uh, I just think that you know they they work quite well, right? So if I ever need to write something high performance, I don't want to have to do the memory management by myself. For Elixir, uh, yeah, I think we all know why it's pretty performant. And then Flutter because we have to write mobile apps sometimes, and it just works great. I tried React Native; it's not so nice. I always you update one piece and it seems the whole thing breaks, and then you're kind of screwed, right? At least that's been my experience. Um, and Flutter just worked for me out of the box. Uh, well, a couple of hiccups here and there, but after you fix those hiccups, then you're pretty much in, ready to go. Yeah, so so that makes sense. So then you're so if I can come back to what you were talking about with your cascade delete. So as I understand, kind of probably what's happening there is you're saying I want to delete this message, and I have to cascade delete all of these replies. And so were you setting up a trigger or something like that? How does PubSub relate that there is a delete here to generating a PubSub event that goes out? Yeah, uh, it's actually running on a trigger. So there's a specific trigger. So yeah, you have to create a function. In that function, then you can name, you know, do what you're going to do, right? And then you have to connect that function to the trigger. And the trigger, you have to specify when you want to run that trigger. So I think there's also like a before delete and after delete, something like that. This is all in SQL. SQL and also the PLSQL language. For that one, I just use simple executes uh, inside of an Ecto migration to run. But something that you need to be careful with, and actually hit me the first time, is I believe there's an eight kilobyte message length that you have to, the limit that you have to make sure you don't hit. And I actually hit that <laughs> when I was uh, testing with the client. So yeah, that was a good test. He wrote an extremely long message. And what I was doing was I took the whole entire row and I sent it across as JSON. And uh, as soon as it blew up when he tried to delete the record, uh, yeah, that's when I knew something was bad. So then all I had to do is, and then I just, I mean, all I really needed was just the ID of the message, right? So I just said, okay, this message was deleted and sent out the ID so the client could figure out which one to remove. So it was, that was a pretty simple fix. Okay, so that's cool. So you kind of just like hijacked this lesser used feature of Postgres, I guess for me at least, yeah. to kind of like notify your clients that, a record was deleted. I, like when I first read your YouTube title of like using Postgres PubSub, I kind of thought like, oh, so like just get rid of PubSub and only use Postgres for that. But really what you did is you just kind of like use something that already existed to solve a problem. It sounds kind of like technically easy or convenient for you, right? Because it's like, hey, whenever this record gets deleted, let all my clients know. So that, sound, that sounds really interesting. And that's a good use case for it, I think. Thinking about what you said, right, about some people said it's going to be replacing PubSub. There actually is somebody I saw in the Elixir Slack channel who supposedly wrote a uh, adapter for Phoenix PubSub, which actually runs on Postgres. So just like there's a PubSub uh, adapter for Redis, I believe it's already supported. I think I saw one somewhere that was actually uh, using Postgres PubSub, which was interesting. And and to be clear, the the broadcasting like the the pub sub the publishing part of this is coming out of Postgres, and your clients are not listening directly to Postgres, right? Is this going back through the backend, which is then pushing messages to the clients? How, how's what does that part look like? Let me tell you that I learn 
how to best use Elixir like I learned how to bowl. Keep hitting gutter balls until you finally get somewhere. <laughs> and maybe my clients are very happy to hear that, but <laughs> it's kind of the truth <laughs> about any kind of skill, I think. I actually was writing a, a client app a couple of years ago. And what we did was that we had separate channels, separate Phoenix channels for every single for every single um, chat room, right? So every private message had a separate channel. Every public chat room had a separate channel. And so the CEO of that company was very outgoing girl, very beautiful, very outgoing, very young. She would, you know, be in all these chats. And so when she opened up the iOS app, which was written in native uh, Swift, I believe, it just froze. It hung for quite some time as it was trying to join up all the channels. And so I thought for a long time, I said, okay, what can we do? Right? I really messed up that one in the past. You know, how can we make this better? Well, what I thought was, okay, how about this? How about we have one user channel that every user joins? It's their own channel. And within there, we can piggyback on PubSub from Phoenix. And so what I would do is as soon as you join the channel, we had this typical after join where you can do your presence and all that. And I just joined up a bunch of PubSub topics. And so what I do is um, from the uh, from the listener, right? So the way this all works is that Postgrex, which is P-O-S-T-G-R-E-X, that one has this notifications uh, sub-module, whatever you want to call it. From there, I listen on the uh, just a generic channel uh, inside of Postgres. So it, that's also called a channel for PubSub. And every time that the message comes in, I actually only check for two fields. One is the ID of the message. And the other one is the ID of the channel, of the uh, channel that that's all coming through. All I do is I say, okay, this channel, and I send that through Phoenix PubSub, and I say, this message ID has been deleted. And through there, that's how everything kind of works. So it's kind of like a double pub. It's almost like a, I don't know how you would even call that. It's like one hand washes the other or something, you know? So the message comes in from Postgres PubSub and then gets traveled over to Phoenix PubSub to then all the, all the clients over there. Because I think of what the alternative would be for this. You know, if you're not using Postgres PubSub, you know, you'd have to say, well, I'm going to delete this thing. I have to query for all the other things and get the IDs of everything. And, and that might be recursive, right? Because it's like replies to replies. So you, like that becomes an exhaustive, expensive query to then say, okay, now I'm going to do all that. And so you're saying, well, you know, I'm just going to let databases do what they really do well, which is manage the data and push that, up, that work back there. The trigger, beautiful. Postgres, PubSub beautiful comes back into your elixir application which has its own pub sub it says okay now i just need to notify all of my subscribed listeners and push it out that way so i think it's great i like that i think it's elegant but what i loved about this whole topic was just that you know kind of challenging the you know that snap judgment assumption that i already have pub sub you know elixir can do pub sub i don't need any other pub sub <laughs> you know it's like well oh, well there are really helpful situations where that might be the best option is to leverage these other tools that happen to have these features like this. So uh, what was your experience like having done it then, having gone through this process and like, were you just, did it work really well? Has it been stable? Have you like learned any pain points from it? You talked about a little bit of the pain points. Are there anything else you want to mention? Actually, I kind of want to go back to, right? Let's not forget that as much as everybody says, and also as much as I don't really want to admit, Elixir can't do everything. I worked on another project with a crypto company and the day, the, the quant analyst, right? He's doing everything in Python and R. And actually the way that we communicate is actually through RabbitMQ, right? So let's not forget that there is times when you actually have to 
do a, what would you call that, inter-language communication, right? So what's the best way to do that? It would be great if you could just connect the two. I suppose you can, actually. You can for some languages, but it's actually probably easier to use something more language agnostic, right, if you don't use something like that. So in that case, we use Rabbit and Q. But, I mean, using Postgres, uh, if we also go back again and start trying to talk about how I don't want to bring extra dependencies into projects, well, you know, if we just have Postgres already, why do I need to add RabbitMQ? What's the what's the actual benefit? I'm not doing anything super crazy. It's just simple broadcast. Uh, so I think PubSub can work great from from Postgres, even if it wasn't using the triggers. I mean, I think it could still work probably great. In fact, we're using it in another project because it works so well in this project. Talking about the pain points, yeah, I think the eight kilobyte length is the biggest pain point. There is some other kind of gotchas that you need to know, and I don't think I'll probably run into those. And that's for this PubSub. Postgres will actually send you less notifications if it's the same message multiple times. So let's say you have like an increment one message that comes through. If you get a bunch of those pretty quickly, you'll probably get some drop messages. So it's pretty good just to try to add something specific to the message. So that way Postgres won't try to collapse all them into a single message for you. That's something I read. And of course, for me, it doesn't really work out like that because every message has a separate ID. So it, should, it shouldn't happen. If it does happen, that'd be a really even bigger problem, I think. That's something to watch out for. And, and again, um, this project, I mean, it's not as popular as, of course, I want it to be. Of course, I want every project I work on to be the most greatest project in the world and everybody's using it. But it's not all products are that lucky, especially in such an early stage for this kind of uh, project. Something to also talk about, too. This is really something I heard it from a previous job. is something called Hygienics. You know, if you don't take a shower, people will tell you that you stink, right? If something's not working out properly. If you shower every day, people won't tell you that, you know, you're doing a good job, right? You just kind of <laughs> just keep doing your thing, right? So that's pretty much the way it works, right? As long as nobody complains, then we should be pretty good. I like that. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about how the notifications library works. So I watched your YouTube video on my phone. So it was a pretty small screen. And I wasn't following how you were able to just register with the notifications. So was that a module you made or is it something that comes with Postgrex? Um, so kind of both. Uh, I believe I did a gen server. You have to start up some kind of process. So I'm guessing this is probably also using a uh, gen server underneath. I'm not too sure. This is a start link. So you have to do another start link for Postgres notifications. And then you have to tell it, uh, listen for certain channels, right? And so I just said, listen for a specific channel. You can have multiple different channels for your for the same connection if you like. But yeah, this is all outside of Ecto. So this is something that also was a little bit scary for me because it's the first time I've ever tried to use Postgrex directly. It's pretty straightforward. You know, it, it worked out pretty okay. So I do the typical style, you know, just IO, inspect everything that comes in, see what comes in, and then easily just hook up what I need to do. You just say start link. And that will give you a uh, okay tuple with a PID. And then from that PID, you just say, okay, I want to listen for this channel. And then you should get actually a message sent to your process. The message is a tuple with notification, the same PID that you have that you're listening with, uh, a reference that you get when you subscribe to the channel, and also the name of the channel plus the payload. I imagine it's probably a gen server underneath, which makes me wonder yeah. if if you have in your entire like chat ecosystem application one gen server that's handling all deletes for all chat rooms everywhere, that could <laughs> probably be a bottleneck. So I wonder 
but hey, you know, if it's working, then I wouldn't mess with it. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, well, this... think about improvements for later. But a, a potential improvement on that would be, you know, starting up dyna a dynamic supervisor thing. Like that's a little bit more scope to like deletes per room or something. Deletes per, you know, if you're Slack, deletes per workspace maybe or something like that. When that room starts up, it also starts up one of these Postgrex notification listeners, you know, that listens for all the, the deletions. That way, <laughs> that way you have several gen servers per chat. Yeah, that could that could definitely work. And especially since every time that there's a group that gets created, they have their own chat room. And now we're starting to open up so that people can create their own groups. So that could be very interesting if we do it that way, right? Every single time we have to... Upon boot, check to see how many groups we have that are active. Okay, so yeah. turn on the notification for every single one. If there's a new one added at runtime, add another one. If it gets removed, remove that yeah. one. Because they want to be able to, of course, monitor that, right? You don't want to be able to add a group that, say, storm the Capitol or something like that. <laughs> and then you have to, of course, remove that. That's something in there. Um, but, of course, we can just you know inspect to see how many messages are actually coming in. If you have a lot of messages getting deleted, that would be even more interesting. Yeah, that's the next thing. It's like, yeah, I wonder how often messages are deleted. So perhaps that won't, won't really ever be a problem. You could stress test it by asking everybody to delete their messages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Alan, there's, a, there's another topic I'd love to come back and talk to, which is just more around your experience in the educating of people, like with the YouTube and something you're doing with uh, teaching people to code. But before we do that, is there anything else you want to mention on this Postgres topic before we switch? What I really wanted to mention was that, you know, Postgres is really just a beast. It's crazy, all the features it has. The support it has for JSON is just amazing. Uh, and also, you know, it's got PubSub in it. Like, I've never imagined that there'd be a SQL server out there or SQL compliant server that has PubSub. Like, what? Well, it doesn't even make sense to me at the, at the top of my head, right? It's really just a Swiss Army knife. Like, I recommend you guys get out there and really take a look at this database if you haven't been using it already. And if you are using it, really get into all the different features it has. Everything I'm using in there is not necessarily Postgres specific, but Postgres really shines at all this stuff, right? Having triggers, having a specific language to write the trigger, encoding the data to JSON, all right, from, from the SQL itself into JSON, uh, using PubSub, all this stuff is just built into Postgres itself. Something I do like to tell people a lot is that Whatever language you're going to use, whatever tools you're going to use, really know your tool, right? You'd be surprised at how these things just kind of happen, right? I wasn't planning on using Postgres PubSub ever. I just saw it and said, okay, why the heck do I need that? I have PubSub and Phoenix, you know? And then this topic came up and I thought, oh my God, actually, this is a really great idea. I don't have to do anything. Just let Postgres take, handle everything for me. So really just try to learn as much as you can about all of your different tools, all the different things you're working with. And don't always try to add something uh, if you don't have to, right? I could have easily used RabbitMQ or something else. Uh, but I think that, you know, take a look at what you have right now. See if that's enough before you add another tool to the mix. That's great advice. We're coming close up to time and I want to respect your time because I know also this is like the middle of the night for you. So I appreciate you being willing to come and talk with us. I did want to get into your experiences in educating and sharing Elixir online. What has that been like? Like, what has the, the reception been to your YouTube videos? Let's start there. I've always wanted to start up my YouTube channel. And I also want, wanted to kind of bring out more content, right? When I was learning Elixir, there was really nothing out there. Uh, there's a lot more content. But if you look at the comparison to other languages, it's still not even close. I started trying to teach the simple stuff. And I noticed that 
seems it wasn't so effective. People didn't really seem to notice it. It could have been because I was just too new with my channel. I don't know. But when I started showing things that I thought were quite interesting or, or useful for me, that's when I noticed that people started actually really watching and, and enjoying it. And so that kind of really inspired me, right? Whenever I get a comment from people uh, that say, hey, you know, your video is really great, or actually I use your video, or, oh, you're that guy. I, I've been subscribed for a long time, right? Those are just the most encouraging comments, right? So even myself, I actually reach out to people like Steve Bussey. I think I said his name properly. I said, hey, you know, well, your, your, your book was great. Uh, I use it. It really inspired me. And I really, you know, really enjoyed your, your stuff. It's really great. Uh, so if, if you guys do watch my videos, just let me know. It just feels good to make sure that you guys are getting some use out of it. And also, yeah, let me know if there's anything I could do better or if there's a topic that you guys are interested in. A couple of people asked me about GenStage. I never had a chance to use it. So I'm trying to pick it up just so I can do a topic about it for people. A lot of people don't realize that what you may think is normal, just a normal day for you, other people struggle with. There was a guy on LinkedIn, he showed that he could use, you know, Google Sheets for translations. I did that like, I don't know, 10 years ago, right? I did a simple rake task, I had pulling stuff from Google Sheets and put it into a YAML file. But he showed people he could do that on, on LinkedIn and everybody thought he was the greatest person ever. And I'm thinking to myself, what the heck, man? If I if I would if I would have known that, I would have showed off that I could do this a long time ago. Um, it's not about showing off, but it's just you know, people don't know what you can do until you 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 show them, right? And people also struggle with the same problems that you do. And it's always good to kind of share your knowledge. Nobody ever showed me that this pub sub stuff would actually be useful until one day I thought, okay, could be useful, right? And it's because I remembered seeing that blog and also the the code on GitHub that I actually went back and figured out, okay, what is this stuff and how can I use it? So that's been the most, the best part about it, right? Is just sharing what I've, what I've done. And also people coming back to me saying, Hey, actually this is useful, but you know, have you thought about this part? Right. And I've actually learned and, and tweaked my, my code. Right. So it's, it's a two way street in that case. So Alan, I totally appreciate that perspective because I also feel the same way. I have kind of heard it described as, you know, we're all on a highway driving our cars, going the same general direction. And there's some, always someone in front and always someone behind, you know, for wherever you are in that stream of cars, there's someone in front of you who's gone there before you who has tips and things that can help you. And you are in front of somebody who's like directly behind you one or two steps. There's value in sharing. As a creator, it, there is value in just knowing that you're not shouting into the void, right? That someone has heard this and that someone finds value in it. That is energizing. There was a comment on Reddit yesterday that somebody was, uh, this guy, there's another guy out there who does a lot of videos, Alchemist Camp, and he released a video about uh, how there's no such thing as a Boolean in Elixir, right? Booleans are actually atoms. Yep. And uh, he was extremely downvoted on his video. And uh, he made a comment saying, hey, I, I feel really horrible for even releasing this video, right? That I, I was basically trashed and, uh, you know, I, I feel for him, right? And what people don't seem to understand is that because you are farther along than other people, it doesn't mean that other people aren't struggling. Now, everybody goes to the docs, right? So when the guy said, okay, why did you talk about this? If you read the manual, if you read the docs, you would know all this stuff. People don't always read the, read the docs. That's why there's something called readthedocs.com or whatever it is, right? So you need to really understand that people don't always read it. So videos are kind of helpful. For me, I like to look for the video and then I try to look for something on Google, right? And a lot of people like that too. Yeah. People have different learning modalities, right? Like some people like to read better. Some people like to hear. 
my point is there is value in sharing your perspective, your experience in whatever medium you enjoy because it will speak to someone. My last question is, what has your experience been like teaching people who are very new to programming on how to do coding? Uh, well, I mean, I've done some one-to-one kind of coaching and I've also done, you know, in a group setting, right? And so this teach me code thing that we're trying to get going over here is really in a group setting. I do do some teaching for other people, uh, other groups here in Hong Kong. There's a couple of boot camps, but they're teaching JavaScript, they're teaching Python, these kind of things. Of course I can do them, but I don't feel they're sufficient, right? There's quite a few times I had actually replaced quite a lot of Python, like when I worked at crypto, when I was a crypto client. I replaced a lot of their Python stuff because it just couldn't handle all the load, right? They're trying to use Python for storing tick data of uh, Bitcoin. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> it's not not so easy to do. We came up with this idea of Teach Me Code because I want to teach people what I think works, right? And that's from experience uh, and also from, you know, also what we do. Looking at what other people are teaching, they're teaching JavaScript, they're teaching Node, and they're teaching Express. And it's just mind-boggling how... These schools think that these people who come from zero background had this idea that, okay, uh, I need to make a uh, website. Okay, I have to make a single page app. Uh has to all be, uh, you know, in React. And I have to use JSON. And I have to use REST. And I have to use uh, all the stuff. Okay, now when I get my Express stuff going, okay, I have to pull in this Express package and this Express package and that Express package and all these Express packages. And basically Frankenstein something. I interviewed a couple of these people, right? Because I believe that, you know, if you can, if you have the mindset, you can program. I usually think that everybody can, can actually code, but I, I changed my stance on this. There's some people who just cannot do it and that's okay, right? Not everybody can do everything. You have to have the mindset, which is just, okay, can I break down this problem? I have to build a rocket ship. Okay. But what's the first thing I have to do? Okay. I have to get a piece of steel. got to shape it, right? You got to start from that part. You can't start from the, okay, what's the trajectory? No, you got to start from the first step, right? So I'm looking for people who have this kind of mindset. If you don't have this kind of mindset of how to break down the problem into simple, small steps, then that's really the the most difficult part. And I sat down with these people at the end of the course. And I said, hey, let me show you something. Let me show you what I use. Because they asked me, okay, well, how do you do this in your work? Because they know what I do, right? I said, actually, I don't even use JavaScript. I don't actually use this. In fact, I hate JavaScript. I, I use Phoenix Live View if I have to, right? I said, okay, this is what I do. And let me show you. Okay, mix Phoenix New. Uh, mix uh, Phoenix HTML. What is it? Gen HTML. It's our generated pages. Okay, mix up to migrate. Click, click, click. Everything just kind of works. They're like, why the heck do they not teach us this? I'm like, <laughs> you know, I, I can't, I, what can I say? I can't say anything, right? It's, it's you know, it's kind of like going against your boss, right? But this is what they choose and this is what companies out here do, right? There's a, there's a really, very big cycle of, okay, the companies will go to the school and say, what do you guys teach? Okay, we're going to use that. And then the schools will go to the company and say, what do you guys use? Okay, we're going to teach that. So you're kind of stuck in this weird little loop, right? Hmm. But for us, it's like, okay, we choose these things because they we think they really work, right? We can build out something quite quickly. And that's what we really want to teach people. That's why we came up with this Teach Me Code, right? Is that we want people to be able to not just build something, but build something and actually understand what the heck it does. There's so many times when I just look at their code that they bring to me and I say, okay, what does this line do? And that line is all about encrypting a cookie and they have no idea what that thing is. And I'm like, oh my God, you're driving me crazy. This is like the one thing I cannot let go is about encryption of cookies and secrets. It's just, I can't let go of that one. There's other things you can make mistakes on, but not something like that. But the first thing that we're starting off with is probably going to be uh, Flutter. And that's just mm. because, you know, it's very 
visual, right? So mm-hmm. with Elixir, yeah, you can kind of explain things. You can kind of show the, you know, if you have the observer up, you can kind of show the CPU usage and all that stuff, but it's not going to make sense for most people. But something like Flutter, yeah, you can just, you know, as soon as you save the code, you'll see the changes, right? It's much easier to explain to people. And people are totally, you know, familiar with uh, mobile devices and mobile applications. So that makes a lot of sense. It's a good place to start. Yeah. So start somewhere. And I think there's a lot of stuff in there too, right? Because, you know, we use streams and we also use other things which are a little bit like uh, like Elixir. And the fact that we try to use things that are, you know, we try to be more uh, immutable, right? Mm-hmm. And I think even Dart is kind of pushing a little bit more immutability in their code too. Yeah. Well, Alan, we're out of time. I'd love to keep talking. It's, it's really interesting stuff. I think the whole discussion around education and helping people kind of make those mental shifts and, and get and, and discover a love for programming is really fun. But if people would like to get in touch with you and continue talking with you and engaging with you, what's the best way for them to do that? I think there's a couple of ways, right? One is that you could tweet, tweet at us. So we have at Plangora. Uh, my personal one is at Alan Wyma which is A-L-L-E-N-W-Y-M-A. You can also try to reach us on YouTube. So just leave us a comment on there. Usually I read those. We don't get many comments. So of course, I'll see it right away. Those are probably the best ways. I also hang out in the Elixir Slack channel pretty much all the time. But uh, of course, the timing is what needs to match up. Awesome. We'll have links to all that in the show notes. So please check that out. And Alan, thank you again for staying up late on your side of the globe to talk with us. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.